The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. We believe that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the work of His Holy Spirit, that God is renewing all things. Um, that He is at work making all things new and reconciling the world to Himself. Included in that work is reconciling us men and women, to the vocation of bearing his image in the world. Now, the way that, what that means is that human beings have always done and continue to do what human beings do, which is that we make families and we build cities, and we grow gardens, we do art, um, we play music, we um, sell coffee, um, we drink coffee. Um, we, we continue over and over and over again to fill the world with culture, um, and, and what God has now done is called a people to himself, reconciled them to himself, and sent them out into a world to continue doing what humans always do, building cities, growing gardens, building families, and bearing witness to um, the crea- creativity, the goodness, the righteousness, the beauty of God. Um, we, we gather tonight and tomorrow night to to think together as a people about what does it mean to be a people bearing the image of God, um, faithfully um, um, bearing witness to the work that Jesus has done as a testimony to the continuing work of the Spirit of God in the midst of the world. How do we do that in a world that is largely still in rebellion against his reign and his rule and his goodness? Um, Park Renew was was established as as a part of our church and to help us think thoroughly um, to think faithfully about these ideas. And so um, tonight we've invited uh, two, uh, two writers, two authors, a professor from Calvin College um, and a pastor from Louisville, Kentucky, um, to help us think about what, what does it mean to live in the midst of the world that we live in? What does it mean to live as people bearing witness to the, worship, to the, to, to the great work of Jesus? Um, and how do, we, how do we become a people marked by faithful presence in our world? Um, so, so as you think about what, what, you're trying to, uh, what you're trying to get out of the, the, the next two nights, and our prayer for this weekend has been that, that God would shape um, not only our church, we, we're, we're thankful that there, um, I recognize a number of you from other churches in our city, but that God would help us as the people of God in Denver, Colorado, and to, to think faithfully about what does it mean to bear his image in our city. Um, our first speaker tonight um, is Jamie, Dr. Jamie Smith. He's a professor of philosophy at Calvin College. He's also a research fellow um, with the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship. Um, I know of very few thinkers and writers today um, that, are, that are doing the kind of work he, that he's doing to help us both perceive um, the world that we live in um, and understand what, what does it mean to be formed into the image of Jesus in that world. Um, and and the, the beauty of what he's doing is he's not doing those, those, those things in new ways. He's doing them in ancient ways, very old ways, very Augustinian ways. Um, and so there, there are a few writers um, today who, who've, who've had a more formative impact in my own way of thinking, um, have had a massive impact in, in the way that we think about what does it mean to be the church as part church. And so uh, we're really, really excited to have him here um, to speak to you. Uh, I, I, I will say this. Um, there, there are a number of books on that table. Um, I would ask if you, if you get just two, um, by Desiring the Kingdom and How Not to Be Secular. Um, those two books are uh, fantastic. They're all actually fantastic, um, but, but those two have been particularly formative for us. Um, but with regards to Desiring the Kingdom, 
I, uh, I mentioned this this morning to a group of pastors who were here um, to hear from Jamie. Uh, that that book has not just shaped how, how we think about um, the liturgy of our church, the worship of our church, the, the vocation and task of our church in forming people. Um, it's actually had um, a, a very large impact on my wife and I and how we think about um, what do we do um, with our kids. How, how do we foster the kinds of rhythms, the kind of liturgies in our home that, that shape the hearts, um, the loves, the desires of our children. Um, praying all along, but at the same time instituting liturgies in our, in, in our home in the hopes that, that they would shape the desires of our children, that they would long for and desire um, the good life and the life that, that bears witness to who God is and what God has done in Jesus Christ. Um, so, so, so listen tonight with an ear to think hard about how do we live in this world, how do we see this world, and how do we bear witness to the work of Jesus in the, the varying vocations represented in this room as we continue to build this city and love this city and serve this city. Um, so here's Jamie Smith. Thanks, brother. This, this is one of the few times I walk up to a podium and it's the right height for me. Good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for being here on a Friday night. Thanks, Brian. And uh, it's an honor to be part of what God is doing through Park Church and uh, to think along with you. And um, uh, my, I, I love it that we have sort of two shots at this because tonight I want to think about uh, um, sort of outwardly directed how we might get a new model for thinking about culture. And then tomorrow night, I want to think about why that then should change the church, the way we think of what's at stake when we worship together. So tonight, um, I think I want to put it this way. I want to invite us to rethink what we mean by cultural renewal and cultural transformation. And I want us to, in a sense, um, recalibrate our radar of cultural analysis. Let me, let me explain what I mean. I am, I am so, everything that Brian said, I add a second amen to, and I'm, I'm totally on fire for that project. And then I want, and then this is where I want to jump into that conversation. I think there are lots of Christians now who are capturing this vision for what it looks like for us to be image bearers of God, renewed in Christ, to be the human culture makers that God always intended for us to be. And so we are excited about a project of cultural renewal and cultural transformation and cultural reformation. And so we are excited to get out there and impact the culture and transform the culture. I'm part of a Christian tradition that has been talking that way for a hundred years. And one of the things I have noticed is this, that if we don't have a sufficiently nuanced and complex understanding of what goes on in culture, in all of our energy and excitement to go out and transform the culture, what we might not realize is that it is transforming us. And in the name of cultural transformation and a quite a sort of triumphal project, what happens is our own cultural assimilation to very different visions of the good life. And I think in some ways that happens because we have, um, what could you say, critical radar that are not appropriately calibrated to pick up on the challenges that we will encounter. And so what I want to give you tonight is an alternative way of thinking about culture. Think of it as just a different paradigm or a different set of lenses for thinking about how culture shapes us and transforms us. And for uh, 
I, I want to say that the, the, the place to build this different vision of culture is actually by, a, by looking at a different model of what human beings are. So I actually think we have to start by asking ourselves, who are we? What sorts of creatures has God made us to be? I think one of the problems that has happened is, especially a lot of us in Protestant and evangelical traditions, we don't realize the extent to which we have appropriated and adopted and inherited an understanding of Christianity that is remarkably sort of heady and intellectualized and sort of focused on the ideas and beliefs and doctrines that make up Christianity. And so what happens is, is we get this kind of bobblehead version of what Christianity is, right? Where it's all sort of focused on all the ideas and beliefs that you have in your head. You know, bobbleheads, you go to the ballpark and you get this bobblehead doll and it's got this humongous head and this itty bitty body because the body doesn't matter. Uh, um, there, there's a sense in which we have inherited a view of Christianity that has tended to fixate on the intellectual aspects of it and the sort of uh, um, ideas and beliefs. And therefore, we translate that into the way that we analyze culture. And so what happens is because we think, basically, we've, we've come to basically assume that human beings are thinking things. We think that you are what you think. In fact, I remember an advertisement in a, in a Christian magazine several years ago that was for a Bible memory verse program. It was just a picture of a guy's face with a big tall forehead like mine, receding hairline. And, and across his, blazoned across his forehead were just the words, you are what you think. You are what you think. And if you assume that human beings are fundamentally thinking things, if you basically assume that human beings are like brains on a stick, then you will think everything revolves around what you know and believe and think. And therefore, that's the way that you are going to be attentive to culture. And your, your sort of, let's call it your cultural analysis radar is, I don't know if this metaphor works, but let's see. Your cultural analysis radar, where you're sort of scanning the culture and trying to like think critically about culture, it's, it's set up and calibrated so it only picks up on messages and ideas and doctrines and rival sort of worldviews. And what happens then is you might miss, if you are so fixated on sort of intellectual ideas and beliefs and so on, you might actually miss powerful cultural currents that aren't trying to convince your intellect, but actually they're trying to get deeper down into the sort of visceral core of who you are. And so I want to suggest that Part of what we need to have a really robust and nuanced understanding of culture and therefore cultural engagement is we need to get away from this kind of thinking thingism, this, this sort of brain on a stick picture of the human person, and instead realize that the center of the human person is located in what scripture calls the heart. Because you see, if I, if I really want to know who you are, and if I really want to know what makes you tick, and if I want to try to get my finger on the very pulse of what makes you run, I am not going to ask you the question, what do you know? I'm not, that's not really going to tell, if I ask you what do you know and you start telling me all the things you know, that's actually not going to get me to the core of who you are. There are all kinds of things you know that don't make a difference. There are all kinds of things that you think that don't make a difference. The question I want you to answer, if I really want to get at the sort of center and core of who you are, here's the question I want you to answer. What do you want? What do you want? 
What do you long for? What do you desire? What do you crave? What do you love? It's interesting, if you read the Gospel of John, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of John is this question. What do you want? There are these two disciples who've gotten sort of excited by what John the Baptist is talking about, and they're starting to trail around, and now they're starting to hang around Jesus, and Jesus kind of wheels around on them, and he's like, hey, what do you want? What are you looking for? It's a very you too question. <laughs> it's a, what, are you, what are you longing for? See, to me, that question is the question we need to ask ourselves because it's a signal that actually the center and core and seat of the human person is not located in the sort of intellectual regions of what we know and what we think. The seat and core and fulcrum of the human person is the heart. It's the seat of your loves. It's not you are what you think. You are what you love. What do you want? Now, that, that is in a sense a very uncomfortable question. Because let's say lots of us, let's assume many of us in the, in the room are Christians and, and I've been well discipled and if I come along and I ask you the question, what do you want? You know what you're supposed to say for an answer, right? You know what the right answer is. You intellectually know what the right answer is. But the scary thing, and this is, where, this, is, this is where our attention to cultural formation needs to insert itself. The scary thing is, I might not want what I think. What do you want? That's the question to ask. And I want to hear the answer. But the thing is, you might not love what you think. You are what you love. But you might not love what you think. Why? Let me try to get the sort of existential sort of uh, the angst we should feel at this point. There's, there's a, um, a Russian filmmaker named Andrei Tarkovsky who um, you should necessarily know. And although he did make an unbelievable film about the Russian icon painter Andrei Rublev, which is remarkable. There is another film called Stalker. I'm not going to get into a long discussion about this film called Stalker. And, it's, and the funny thing is that that translation doesn't quite get at what it's at. But in this Andre Tarkovsky film called Stalker, I'm going to compress it down to just the one scene I want us to think about. There is a guide who is leading these two gentlemen into the zone. And inside the zone is a room, which is the room in which all of your desires will be fulfilled. In other words, in this room, it's kind of a sci-fi, post-apocalyptic fantasy kind of film. And here's what happens. The guide leads these two people, one's a professor, one's a writer, ding, ding, ding. But, and he leads them to the threshold of this room, and they want to come to this room because in the room, you get what you want. It's a dream. In this room, you get what you want. They get to the threshold of the room, and the guide says to them, here you go. We made it. It's been a long, arduous journey. We've made it to the room. You step into this room, you get what you want. Here we are. Open the door. Walk in. Neither of them will go. Why? Because now that they're on the threshold of this door, and they know that when they walk in, they're going to get what they want, they start to wonder whether they want what they think. And the room doesn't 
isn't going to give them what they think they want. The room is going to give them what they really want, deep down at this unconscious level, and they realize that they might not be aware that they have wants going on under the hood that they don't even sort of control. I don't want to be that alarmist about things. All I want us to do <laughs> is I want us to feel, I want us to feel that there can be a tension and a gap between what we know we should want and what we really do want. And that's because we are not thinking things. We're not just thinking things. We are creatures of desire. We are creatures of love. We are creatures of longing. And we are animated and oriented out of this visceral center of who God has made us to be. And the New Testament time and time again calls that the heart. The center of the human person is not the mind. The executive power of the human person is actually not governed by the intellect. What really drives us and orients us is this visceral affective core of the human person that scripture calls the heart. And it's called the heart because it is the seat of our loves. You are what you love. So St. Augustine, in the opening paragraph of his Confessions, which is this sort of remarkable spiritual autobiography, all of which is framed as a prayer, in the very opening paragraph of the Confessions, Augustine prays to the Lord and he says this, You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Get that? You, praying to the Lord, you the Creator, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. See, to me, that is a brilliant insight into the sort of core centering aspect of the human person because he doesn't say, you have made us for yourself and we won't know anything until we know you. He doesn't frame it as an intellectual quest. He doesn't just frame it as an issue of knowledge. He frames it as this affective question of love and longing and desire that is seated in the heart. You have made us for yourself. That's what it is to be human. To be human is to be a lover. What defines the human person is our desires and our longings. I guess one of the things I should, should try to clarify is um, I want us to learn to use the words love and desire and longing synonymously. That is, for me, those are synonyms. So we're, when we're talking about love, we are actually talking about a kind of if this is okay to say, Pastor, that we're talking about an erotic pull towards the Creator. See, we have, unfortunately as Christians, we've picked up this really bad habit that we think anything erotic must be bad. That's got to be bad. Why is he saying erotic in church? <laughs> but the problem is, it's not eros. Eros itself is not bad. It's disordered eros that is the problem. To be made in God's image and to be made for God is actually to be made as the kinds of creatures who are built to long for and desire and crave God above all else. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Now what that means is if, human, if to be human is to be a lover... And that is a structural feature of human beings. What that means is every human being is sort of wired to long for and crave and desire and love some vision of the ultimate, some, some version of the good life, some kind of rendition of the kingdom. You can't be human 
and not be oriented to and animated by and pulled towards what you have learned to see as the sort of fullness of the good life. That's, that's just a structural feature of being human. The effect of sin and the fall and brokenness on that kind of structural aspect of being human is not that we stop loving. See, that's what you might, you might think. Oh yeah, God made us to love Him and to be human is to be a lover and is to crave this sort of ultimate fullness and flourishing. But obviously in a sinful, broken world, people don't love. No, that's actually not it. You can't be human and not love. It's not that sin turns off that drive, that longing, that desire. What happens is it gets misdirected. And it gets channeled at all kinds of rival, ultimately disappointing gods. Our idolatries are not intellectual. They are erotic. Our idolatries are, are aspects and expressions of a disordered desire that has made us want and long for a rival version of the kingdom, a rival version of what the good life is. So you are what you love, and what you love, you can't not love something ultimate. Now, here's the key sort of turn, and now this is where we're going to start talking about culture, if you're getting worried. I don't know. Okay, good. Um... Love is a habit. Love in the historic Christian tradition and even in the New Testament, if you look at Colossians chapter 3, I think is just a great uh, uh, location to see this. Love has historically been understood in the church as a virtue, which means that love is a good habit. Now what does that mean? Our loves are dispositions that are sort of inscribed in us and woven into our very character so that we become the kind of person when you have a habit, when you have a disposition, when you have a virtue of this sort what that means is you've acquired a habit that makes you the kind of person so that you naturally tend to some end Okay, and if you think of love as a habit if you understand that love is a virtue what that means is this you can know what you ought to love you can know what you ought to love and not be the kind of person who actually loves it. Why? Because, and this, this will be maddening and frustrating to all of us, but you don't get to go, you can't just go to the most perfect conference at Park Church and then and figure out everything that you're supposed to love and then wake up Monday morning and say, oh, okay, well, I've got that figured out. From now on, I will love what I'm supposed to love. Have you ever tried that? By about Tuesday, it sort of doesn't work, right? And you're, and you're back to sort of craving these other visions of the good life. Notice, I'm not, I'm not even just talking about sort of discrete sins or temptations. What I'm saying is, as a people, we are formed and shaped. Our loves are trained. Our loves are habituated into us so that we start to pursue a whole way of life that has become a habit. And if love is a habit, then that means it's formed in us. Our loves are trained and aimed and directed not by what you think. You can't just think your way to rightly ordered love. 
you have to actually rehabituate, you have to retrain your loves by being immersed in practices and rhythms and rituals that train us and inscribe those dispositions in us. Let, let, let me try an illustration, okay, to just get, feel this point. What, what I'm trying to point out is that you can't just think your way to rightly ordered love. And that's because even our disordered loves are not primarily the result of bad ideas that we've taken in. They are the result of habit formations that come from practices that we've been immersed in that at a very unconscious level have taught us over time to want something else. I'll give you a sort of human, mundane, natural example of, of how this dynamic works, okay? Um, so uh, my lovely wife, Deanna, is an absolutely unbelievable sort of champion of good eating in, in a lot of different ways. So she's a master gardener. She's a gourmet cook. She just makes all this beautiful, healthy stuff for us. She has this big urban garden plot. It's unbelievable. Uh, um, you, you, those of you who follow me on Twitter know I eat way better than I deserve. And, and for years, Deanna has been a champion of both eating well and eating healthy, so good eating in that sense, but also has, a, has an interest and concern about like just food systems. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that, that food is produced and cared for and, and, and uh, uh, distributed in ways that are good for the creation and good for the creatures that God has made. And so in, in our freezer, we only have like happy cows that, that had a really lovely time before they were killed. And, and this, this like a really happy pig that just was living it up and then was slaughtered. But it's so different than the experience of those poor pigs at Tyson Foods or whatever it might be, okay? So that kind of, that twofold sense of good eating, just eating, healthy eating, eating well. And, and for years, uh, uh, Deanna has been sort of an evangelist of that with our family and to me, and I'm a very obstinate husband, uh, stiff-necked people, and... and uh, sort of resisted and resisted and resisted. And then we were in Asheville, North Carolina one time, and I picked up this um, uh, anthology by Wendell Berry called Bringing It to the Table. And, and Deanna's read like Michael Pollan and King, Barbara Kingsolver, and Wendell Berry is similar sort of vision. So I pick up this anthology by Wendell Berry, and I start reading it. It's the book now that I'm taking everywhere I go with me. And I'm reading this, and I'm like blown away. And Deanna's kind of steaming because he's not saying anything that Deanna hasn't said for the last 10 years, but now I'm listening to it. Very con Every spouse knows how this goes. So I'm reading, bringing it to the table. I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I, I'm, you know, I'm underlining everything. A checkmark is like, yay, amen, oh man. And I'm feeling so intellectually convicted by this. And I get it. I totally understand the argument. And, and I'm on board. I'm with you. I want to be. This is exactly the way the world should be. And this is the way I should be. And one day I was reading this and sort of reflected ponsively for a moment on a passage that I read. And I was sort of, you know, meditating on this. And I looked around and I realized I'm reading Wendell Berry in the food court at Costco. Now, if you don't know anything about Wendell Berry, the food court at Costco is kind of like the sixth circle of hell of everything that is wrong with our food systems, right? It's just everything that's wrong. And yet here I am sitting there, probably with a foot-long hot dog, reading this, this unbelievable argument, and intellectually I'm entirely convinced 
But then why am I eating this foot long in the food court at Costco? Why? Because there will be a gap between our intellectual convictions and the habits of our longings. See, what I need, what has to happen here is, it's not enough. What, Wendell Berry can convince my intellect, but man, that is a long way from recruiting my loves, my wants. I, I can agree with Wendell Berry all day long. That still doesn't change the fact that when I'm driving by McDonald's, I'm thinking milkshake, 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 and I want it. Why? Because my wants are not just the product of intellectual deliberation. My loves and my longings and my cravings are habits that have been formed in me by a lifetime of eating rituals. And those habits, those wants, those loves have been inscribed into my very character, you could say, not because, you know, uh, uh, somebody came out with a, a, a tract that was convincing me to eat badly. It's more like I just got recruited into a way of life that never ever once appealed to my intellect, but nonetheless was sort of recruiting my loves and my wants. That's the space, and that is part of the way that cultural formation works on us. See, what I want us to realize is that when we are immersed and engaged and participating in culture, we can't just sort of say, I've got all the knowledge and information and ideas I need to now confidently march out and renew and transform culture. Because if you are just fixated on having the answers to the questions, you won't realize that when you move out into culture, they're not trying to fight an intellectual battle. The culture is inviting you into rhythms and practices and rituals that are after your longings not your mind, right? The, the culture is in many ways not trying to recruit my intellect. It's trying to capture my imagination. And if, we don't, if we're not aware of that, then what will happen is we won't realize the formative power of cultural practices that we are immersed in. And so we can go out with a confident program of transforming culture because we have the right ideas and the truth, while all the while we are sort of learning to eat at Costco. Do you know, do you, know you get the analogy? That is, we, we, our, our, our loves and longings are being recruited by cultural practices that really function as what, what I would call secular liturgies. They are rituals that are training us at a subterranean level to love and want and crave rival versions of the good life. And nobody's announcing that as an argument. Right? Nobody is sort of coming along and saying, hey, I want you to believe this. There's, there's a lot of really interesting research happening right now in cognitive science and neuroscience that helps us to explain this. Uh, um, John Barg and, and uh, uh, Tanya Chartrand, uh, um, uh, contemporary psychologists, have done this study where they talk about all the ways that we learn to sort of navigate our world at an unconscious level. And what happens is, is they say we acquire these automaticities, these, these sort of automated ways of making sense of our world and sort of feeling our way around the world. And some of those automaticities we acquire because we intentionally choose to practice certain things. But the really scary thing is that you can have things start to be automated in you that you never chose because you didn't realize you were immersed in rituals that were forming you. See, what I want us to realize is if you, don't, if you don't sort of put on this formative lens and see culture through this lens, you'll, you'll think 
that there's a whole bunch of things that we just do and not realize that the whole time they're doing something to you. And they're not just neutral things that we do. In fact, they, are, they have a kind of liturgical power because they are actually doing something to me. And what they're really ultimately doing to me is teaching me to love some rival kingdom. Not by convincing my intellect, but by grabbing hold of my gut. Uh, my oldest son and I used to have some conversations, let's say, about going to the mall. And, and I, we had one sort of dinner conversation where I was trying to frame why I thought this was, this was uh, at least an issue to have a conversation about. This, this is the, what sucks if your dad's a theologian, I guess. And, and um, at one point, uh, I, I recall him saying, sort of snarky and, and smart-alecky, Dad, would you take us to the temple? Because he wanted to go to the mall. Would you take us to the temple? Now, I considered this a parenting win because... <laughs> It grew, even though he's sort of mocking me in the process, it grew out of a a, a conversation in which I tried to impress upon him that the mall is not just the place that you go. It's not just something that you do. It is doing something to you. And I would say the mall, wherever that is, whatever that is, is always one of the most intensely religious sites in any city. Obviously not because it's a Christian site. But because I'm calling it a religious site because it is a liturgical site. It is a place rife with rhythms and rituals and liturgies, you could say, that are not trying to convince your intellect. They are aiming lower. (laughs) And they're they're trying to capture your cardia, as the New Testament calls it. We translate it heart. I think sometimes we should say your gut. It's trying to get this visceral core of who you are by capturing your imagination with a vision of the good life. And that's not because when you walk into the mall, somebody meets you at the door and says, here's the 16 fundamental things that the mall believes. The mall doesn't believe anything. The mall doesn't doesn't care what you believe. It doesn't want you thinking about what you believe, but it wants you to want something. How, How do we become consumerists? How do we become captive to a consumer gospel? Nobody's trying to change your mind. Nobody's sending messages to you to try to convince your intellect to be a consumer. The way we get captivated by a consumerist gospel is by being immersed in the rituals and rhythms of a marketized culture that are actually telling us stories about what the good life looks like. So that when you, this is, this is Cosper. I'm, I'm totally setting up Cosper and he owes me. What, what happens is, is when I go to the mall, think of the mall. Now, now put, put on your sort of ritual liturgical analysis glasses and look at the mall again. There are rhythms and rituals and, and kind of religious iconic visuals going on there, right? We could, do, we could do a long analysis about how the mall has its own liturgical calendar, right? And it revolves around Christmas, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, do you know what I mean? There's, and it has this, this draped in colors. And, and all of this is sort of suffusing an environment to make you want new stuff. And there is, when you walk through the mall, it's like almost like walking through an ancient cathedral. But when you go to York Minster Cathedral, right, all the glass is lined with these images of the saints who are exemplars of what the good life looks like, and we are to imitate them. And so when you walk through the mall, turns out it too 
is sort of lined with exemplars of what the good life looks like. It's just that they're wearing, I don't know, I'm not up enough to know. They're wearing, I know they're not wearing H&M. Whatever it is they're wearing right now, okay? But you know what I mean? <laughs> Basically, everybody is sort of draped in, what are they wearing, Jack? They're wearing Forever 21, or I don't know. But do you know what I mean? Like this is, these are, and these, these icons are way better because they're like 3D, right? They're mannequins that are draped. And, and all, what I want us to appreciate is, all of these dynamics are working on us and shaping not what we think, they shape what we want. They are working and training us at the level of our loves. And if we aren't aware of it, what we won't realize is that we are slowly but steadily being habituated to and captivated by a vision of the good life that is very antithetical to the vision of shalom that is pictured in Scripture. And we start to want a world very different from the kingdom of God. And if we aren't aware of this, then what we won't realize is that also our culture making is governed and shaped by that liturgy. And so what I want us to appreciate is that in some sense, because we are desiring creatures, it also means that we are sort of liturgical animals, so to speak. And we need eyes to see the formative and maybe we could say deformative power of these cultural liturgies, these cultural rituals that aren't trying to convince my intellect, but nevertheless are trying to recruit my loves and longings. What that means is um, you can't think your way out of that situation either. <laughs> so, so nothing Jamie Smith is going to tell you tonight is automatically going to solve it and so that you are you know immediately desanitized why because those loves are habits and the only way that i learned to stop going to costco well stop going to mcdonald's stop going to whatever is it's reading wendell berry's not enough what i need is for my loves and longings to be retrained rehabituated and that, friends, now all of a sudden, you have a completely different framework for seeing what God is inviting us into in the worship of the body of Christ, right? Now, worship, the central gathering of the people of God around word and table to inhabit the story of God in Christ reconciling all things to himself, isn't just a space where we are going to get more information so that we know what to think about the world. Worship is the space in which we are learning how to love again. Worship is the space in which our loves and longings and cravings and desires are slowly being retrained by the Spirit of God to be indexed and bent towards kingdom come. And that's because the Spirit of God meets us where we are as embodied, material, desiring creatures, right? A lot of this hinges on recognizing that as human beings, we are creatures of habit. We are creatures of habit. And it turns out that is not a surprise to God because he made us. And so when you recognize that we are creatures of habit, you'll start to realize that our habits can be deformed. But thanks be to God, he doesn't just give us information so that we feel bad about how our habits are deformed. Do you know what he gives us? Different practices, different rituals different rhythms to re-educate, reform our own loves and longings so that when the Spirit of God meets us in the practices of Christian worship, the Spirit is meeting us where we are and is inviting us into the story of God reconciling all things to Himself. 
We don't have to just think our way into the kingdom. In fact, we never could. Thanks be to God, our God is an incarnating God who condescends to meet us where we are and gives us the reformative practices so that we can now retrain our hearts, re-index our loves and longings to God and His kingdom, and then we are sent out again to bear His image in that culture that we are now aware of in new ways. That's what I want to talk. Tomorrow night, I want to, we'll, we'll come back and then think about constructively what does it look like then? How does Christian worship sort of retrain our loves and longings? Not just so that we go out with the information we need, but so that we are engaged in a project where God's formational power is getting hold of our hearts and longings. We'll look forward to that tomorrow night. Thank you. Woo!